Hi, everyone. I'm Nathan, the host of this podcast. And tonight, I'm honored to be joined by Professor Tomas F. Summer Sandoval. Professor Summer Sandoval is an associate professor of history and Chicana slash Latina studies at Pomona College, where he has twice received the Distinguished Professor Award for teaching. There, he teaches classes on Latinx history, social movements, oral history, and racial inequality in the United States, specifically California. He currently serves as the first vice president of the Oral History Association. Hi, Professor. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Nathan. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you so much for, for hopping on this podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, to quickly get started with the first question we ask every guest, if you could have a dinner for two with any figure at any point in history, who would you choose? What would you talk about and why? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. I I actually, I, I, I struggle with questions like that, though, because I think there I, there's lots of different ways to uh, approach them, right? But um, I mean, the things that I'm really into, I'm really into music. I'm really into political change. And so figures from both of those worlds would be ones. But in all actuality, like I'm an oral historian. And so I like talking to regular people. Like everybody, everybody has some element of a fascinating story in their lives. And so probably the people I would be most interested in speaking with are just like rank and file Mexican, Mexican-Americans in California, you know, 100 years ago you know, 110 years ago or so in that early part of the, of the 20th century, that, that would be my, as, as, as a historian, I think that's the grouping of people I'd most be interested in hearing about their experiences and things like that. Yeah. Well, other than that, I would love to talk to BB King, Elvis Presley, Tom Waits, Aretha Franklin, Ella Fitzgerald. Oh my goodness. Give me multiple of those dinner for two passes. There you go. I think a group dinner would be nice. But... Well, your first book on Latinos at the Golden Gate and creating community and identity in San Francisco is about that community building in California. Um, how Could you give a general overview of how migrant communities typically create the sense of community and identity? Well, sure. Um, I mean, I think <clears throat> the thing we often do in a United States context in particular is that we talk about a population of people as community, right? Um, you know, we say, oh, the African-American community or the, the Latino or Latinx community. And that to me is a, is a, is a, it, well, is a dangerous slip of, of our tongue because uh, just because people uh, exist and just because people exist in groups in which they identify themselves as part of a larger group doesn't make that a community. Right. I mean, the community has a has a different dynamic to it. It's a it's a, a coming together of people of some not just mutual sense of each other, but also mutual reliance. And um, usually geographic place is a big part of that. Certainly certain kinds of, of practices that build that collective identity and one's participation in it are a part of it. And so there's all these things, all these things that the community is. And I think human beings in general you know, create communities. We create these groupings of human beings, not always to, you know, in a national sense, like to close out others and that kind of thing, but just as, as, as forms of, of human sustenance, right? The kinds of things that we, we crave as human beings and rely upon each other for. And so that, that, that story, which is a long story, I mean, anywhere, right? And, and certainly a long story in the United States where, you know, it's been a, a a nation of so many different waves of of immigrants as well as as indigenous populations and you know enslaved people imported like that that mix of of everything that happened in the United States is always creating opportunities for populations of people to create those kinds of communities. And so that's kind of what I was looking at. Like the first step of that is is a population, right? It is a critical mass of a population in a given place where people seek each other out, uh, usually come together in, in some groupings, right? And then people creating a sense of home, which is usually some kind of continuity of of the past, right? Like restaurants, you know, 
um, uh, houses of worship in in one's native tongue, um, the kinds of things that ease a transition into a very new place, a new culture, a new society, um, a new set of communities is is a continuation of the community that you left behind, right? It's it's the things that you bring with you and that you recreate here, and then over time those things you know they they change they change in in both ways like they get renewed with with you know newer waves of of migrants who come with uh, a similar but also different uh, version of of that that culture and that identity and the set of cultural practices and values and expectations and then of course uh, succeeding generations. Um, you know, have a different interpretation of what it is to be themselves in this country, right? That is also mixed with some level of assimilation. If all that makes sense, that's that's kind of the the broad dynamic of that story. So I was looking at those populations of Latin American descent people in San Francisco, which didn't have, uh, for most of its history, didn't have really a critical mass of Spanish-speaking people, but they often started, well, when they did have those populations, a very diverse population, they started to come together as as a community, not as as like Mexicans, only Mexicans, or only Puerto Ricans, or Chileans, Peruvians. They were all represented in that in that nineteenth century San Francisco, but they started to come together collectively, right into into a single community of of Spanish speaking people, Spanish speaking Catholics, you know, various kinds of of things. So that's what that book's about. Yeah, and I've heard a lot of people describe the U.S. as like a melting pot. From your experiences and research, is that an accurate description? I mean, in some in some sense, sure, right. But that there there's a, there's a lot that goes into that that idea of a melting pot, right? Um, I mean, everybody, <clears throat> every person is is multiple kinds of identities, right? They're the identities that we. Uh, ascribe to, um, the, you know, that we assert in our world, right? The, how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves connected up to a larger group of people, what that means to be us in that defining way. And then, you know, that's the, the us that we put forward. But we're also the identities that are ascribed to us, right? That are assigned to us by a larger society. And melting pot, that idea of the melting pot is is in some kind of a assimilationist, you know, value that that a nation, especially in the early 20th century, that had such a high number of immigrants, was was sort of selling and almost, you know, they were proponents of it in certain realms, right? In certain segments of the of society, in the realm of education, for example, right? They were encouraging that kind of assimilation. But there's always been another element of U.S. that in that assigning part uh, sees certain people as unassimilable, right? And so their presence here in the country has never been allowed to assimilate the same ways that others are. doesn't mean that it doesn't happen in different ways, right? Um, but it does, it does differentiate those experiences. And so that's always been – that's a, just a big part of U.S. immigration history, right? Understanding the roles – of ideas about race, right, and how that shapes people's experiences, um, not because of of anything other than where they came from or, and how they're seen by a larger society that that sees race in very different ways, perhaps than you did uh, in the place that you come from, right? Yeah, and you mentioned that typically migrant communities they. Their closest point of contact are people within that immediate sphere, but also people perhaps with from a same broader civilization as them, as Huntington would say, like speaking the same language, having those cultural ties. Have there been any historic examples of really strong coalition building between two completely different or a few completely different groups um, once they've sure. the country? Sure. I mean, I think I think, you know, the that kind of that kind of historical phenomena, um, if you will, it needs a context, right? And the first context is that there have to be these different races and cultures and groupings of people who are in the same situation, in the same geographic place at the very least, right? And those contexts uh, can produce lots of things, right? They can produce friction, uh, between them, sometimes, you know, they could be competitors in the labor market, even the low end of the labor market, right? They can be pitted against each other, and that 
would necessarily create, uh, you know, alliances. But there's been, you know, so many examples of that in the political realm, um, in the in the identity realm, right? Where groupies of people, especially non-white people in the United States, in a in a nation where for so much of its of its past and even a, a good chunk of its present uh, sees whiteness, right? Which is this shifting thing over time, but sees whiteness as defining who who the nation is then there is something of an alliance of people who don't fit into that category, right? And there can always be an alliance of people that don't fit into that category, the the alliances of the others. And I mean, there's there's so many examples. I think that one of the, like, I mean, look at this example. And during the beginning of World War II, the United States, you know, put into camps um, over 100,000 ethnic Japanese uh, from the West Coast. Um, and, uh, people who were not only Japanese immigrants, uh, of, you know, first generation immigrants, but also many of their second and third generation children, right? And the most of the people who were put into those, uh, concentrated camps were, um, children, uh, over majority of them were under the age of 18. And uh, just one little story about that is a lot of where Japanese Americans were living were in these non-white communities, you know, in proximity to uh, Mexican, Mexican-Americans and proximity to African-Americans in some cases. Um, one of those was in, in Southern California in certain working class communities that were mixed that way. And there's a story of this one young man, Ralph Lasso, who was in one of those classrooms where he was best friends with a Japanese American and that boy and his family, uh, you know, got sent away to uh, one of the, the camps in Manzanar, maybe one of the most famous. And um, he went along. He went when they reported and he went to the camp and he he did. Uh, I think he was there for over a year until he, he uh, was drafted and, and went to World War II. And he had at first just told his family he was going to a summer camp, um, but then he he didn't come back. Like that that kind of alliance, you know, is rare and extreme. But it's a good it's a good story, right? It shows the kinds of possibilities of the way that people can identify themselves with with multiple kinds of people, right? And you talk about how people sort of there's the central group in each country, and then there are the others were the migrant communities. How can that? central group like just for audience out there help or be respectful in the process of helping migrant communities better feel more at home in the new society yeah <laughs> that's a big question that's a big question i mean the united states as a country is not static and the united states people are not static right just like people everywhere right there's a great amount of change and so you know, the idea of who is white and what is white and what white means um, is as much a fluid thing over time as, as anything else. And so it does shift and it does change, you know, and the United States is always, you know, at the at maybe the simplest way to see them is always in sort of competition with itself, always in some sort of, you know, tension uh, between itself, um, competing visions of what it is, competing realities of what it is, right? I mean, this nation is founded, you know, under under this language of liberty, right? Under this this language of being, you know, this this democracy, um, the powerful kinds of concepts, right? And yet a fifth of the population inside of that country at its founding was enslaved. Right. And then you could say, oh well, well, you know, okay, then all that language about uh, liberty uh, and and democracy. Well, all that means nothing. It was just a lie because the reality is it was a slaveholding nation. Um, or you could say, actually, that right there is the United States, right? That right there is the American project. It's the tension of those two, right? The question, as as the great historian Edmund Morgan put, you know, over fifty years ago now, is fundamentally how could a nation founded in that ideal of, of liberty and democracy also be a slaveholding nation, right? And it's the it's the both and, right? That they're both of those things at the same time. And so the US has always been that. And I think I think we continue to to fight against ourselves things like immigration, especially immigration of of people perceived by certain people as non-white, right? As being a racial other. Um, but there are always other people too. 
right? There are also other dynamics too, ones where we don't have to necessarily even assimilate, but we change the culture as a whole, right? It becomes a new thing that we are all a part of. And that's one of the wonderful things that I think migration gives a place like the United States, right? A place that is dedicated to those kinds of things. It gives it an opportunity to, to test, to test its, its, its idea, you know, that if it, this is really a nation of people committed to a certain political reality, that people should be able to have a voice in their own, you know, in their own government and not upon race, well then, right? Migration is a fundamental part of it. It enlivens it, right? It makes it real. Um, but then there are other people, you know, I think, I think, you know, a certain extent, a minority of people, but other people who feel very much differently, right? That that's a threat to the American way. The, I mean, you quoted a, an important intellectual, Samuel Huntington, right? Who sort of famously was one of these, you know, uh, bell ringers about, oh, the panic, the, the, you know, this is the end of the, of Western civilization as we know it. But, um, I think all oh, that's just foolishness. And you alluded to this, but with immigration, there are a lot of times migrant communities face a lot of problems um, being viewed as the other. And that can take the form of not having the rights that they should have um, facing oppression in a new society. When you look at sort of the historical problems facing Latinx communities and those today in the U.S., do you see any similarities, any major differences? I mean, sure, there are always, there are both, always, right? I mean, our our context is always changing. Our expectations are always changing. Our language of freedom, our language of rights, um, these things are are as dynamic and growing as 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 anything else. So those things those things are always changing. But of course, there, yes, there's always. I mean, there there are kernels of consistency, and then things that that play out the same way, but maybe in different ways and uh, in in different you know, places. But yeah, generally, I mean, the broad strokes is to say that a lot of populations defined as that other are are marginalized, right, on the pushed on the edges of society and in terms of the opportunities that they have to to move up um, and all the vehicles that create those opportunities, education, um, you know, which is a great uh, maker of mobility in this country. Um, you know, the kinds of ways that certain forms of, of certain segments of the immigrant uh, community are locked into a labor system that's been pretty, you know, it's been changing a lot. For example, the labor system of the West is very different than it was 150 years ago. But, you know, some of the fundamental realities of it have not changed much, you know, which are, you know, in the case of the West, you know, Spanish speaking people for the last century and more have been a key you know part of of the lowest end of that labor market right and so that that seems to be a consistent but but it's of course it's not right it's it's a consistent reality that's consistent in that sense but it's happening in different ways and different reasons um so yeah i mean that's the that is one of the attractive things about history is that we understand better how we get to our presence right whatever our present is um but we also are a little bit more um humble and complicated about how even things that look like continuity really always aren't and how sometimes things that look like change might be a high degree of continuity right um I hope that doesn't sound too philosophical but like the way that we think about race in this country you know has changed a lot but also has not right and and we still are we're still sort of wedded to these these very old notions right but in different ways and for different purposes but with how we view race i guess one of these questions is a more there's so many terms now surrounding how we should properly define different communities so in particular for latin american communities who are now in the united states what are sort of the major factions and what is the correct way to sort of address them? You mean the words we use to describe? Yeah. Because some, yeah, sometimes I find myself um, using Latinx, but then I would reason, read a new news article that says we're trying to get rid of that word. But then another article would say something like it, it, it should persist. And 
sort of like a personal curiosity question from the perspective. Uh, yeah. 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 It's, that's a really good question. It's a really good question. I almost feel like the answer, the real answer is at least a class, um, uh, you know, a session of a class, uh, than 50 things, but, or, you know, these, these easy to, to grapple with things, but I'll start by saying this, there's a difference in the words we use to describe ourselves to people who are not us. There can be a difference in the words we use to do that versus the words we use to identify and link ourselves up to people who we perceive to be part of our community, even though they're people we've never met, right? There's this great author, well, 40, well, four, just about 40 years ago now, a man named Benedict Anderson wrote a book called Imagine Communities, right? That's that's a big dynamic, right? Not only the community that we see, but we identify with people that we'll never meet. They're thousands of miles away, but that we see as part of our community. And then the words that we use to describe who we are, right, to ourselves, our own identities, our personal identities. And that's the politics of race and community and identity inside of a, a pluralistic nation is that there's always going to be some contests over those words, right? Because especially because part of part of, the easy way to see this is that obviously the words that we're using, at least in the last, you know, the end of the 20th century, the last half of the 20th century were movements for people to claim words for themselves to describe who they are, mm -hmm. right? To no longer be called the derogatory things that a larger society called them but to assert an identity for themselves in the language, right? For example, you know, African-Americans stopping to use the word uh, Negro to describe themselves and replacing that with Afro-American, African-American, Black. That was a an assertion, right? A, the group itself changing the words that you're going to call us. And Latinos, uh, you know, in various ways have had that, that same dynamic. I think the tricky part about Latinidad in general is that what we're talking about is a collective term too, right? That represents a, a at the bottom level of it, a, a diversity, a national diversity and a cultural diversity um, between the, the various Spanish speaking nations who have, uh, who have been the original homes of many of the migrant populations here, right? The, the, what the federal government calls us as Hispanic, right? They were looking for a collective term and, the people who were in power as representatives of that community, who were largely Puerto Rican and Mexican uh, political organizations at the time, like they they collectively worked with the government to come up with this term Hispanic. Um, and that's the collective term, right? And it's still the federal collective term, Hispanic. Um, but, but you know, uh, not that many people really identify themselves to themselves or to their community as Hispanic, right? And so Latino and Latina uh, in that gendered way became a, another substitute term, but serving the same function, but a little bit more of a, of a bottom up kind of thing, you know, respecting the Spanish language that it's a Spanish word or derived from a Spanish word of Latino Americano. Um, and then, but then at the same time, people often, you know, there's the funny dynamic, like the Hispanic population in the U.S. or the Latino population or Latinx which is a way of, of making that uh, inclusive to gender non-binary uh, uh, people. Um, and now inside of my field of, of Chicanx studies and Latinx studies, the the thing that, that people do now is even in my class, I'll use the word Latine with an E at the end, <laughs> which is more, which is aligned with Spanish more to be gender non-binary, which is the way people, the, the transgender movements and linguistic movements in Latin America have, that's kind of what they were doing, right? A Latinu, uh, putting a U on it or a Latine, uh, or, you know, the various nationalities. And so there's all these different terms, right? But at the, the funny part in the United States is that the vast majority of people who fall under any one of those terms, let's say Hispanic, vast majority of Hispanic people in the United States, when asked about their own identity, use a language, use a term that encapsulates their original uh, uh, ethnic heritage by nation. And so most uh, Mexican uh, descent people in the United States uh, identify themselves as Mexican, Mexican-American, right? Most Salvadoran identified people in the United States identify as Salvadoran, Salvadoran-American. 
or salvadoreño, you know, mexicano. Um, so these national terms are still the the ones that we use internally. So that's that's the short answer to the complex question, right, of how we identify. And I'm sure the U.S. isn't special here, right? I mean, the rest of the world is is you know this is this is a, a function of well whatever it's a function of, right? It's something that's characteristic of of everywhere in this world, right? The various terms we use each other for ourselves and each other, and then the ones that institutions of power like government use, right? And you said society. It's dynamic. It keeps changing. And the way people think of themselves as perhaps different generations start living in different countries, coming from different places, are going to start thinking of themselves in different ways. And that's going to reflect in how we should respectfully um, address them as well. And at the same time, I think that's part of the value of studying history, because I know one of one of the landmarks, I guess, um, I've been looking a little bit into Puerto Rican communities in the United States, and it was the boycotts in New York regarding the schools to start introducing courses um, of learning about Latin American and specific um, the history of specific communities at school. And um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that looking at that and that process of studying the roots of coming to a new nation, the sort of frames how people would think of themselves within the within both of their distinctive national identities i guess um well yeah i mean every every everything shapes who we are everything shapes how we see each other we 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 you know there are some things that are clearly uh sites of importance and power in that process. Education is one of them, right? For migrant communities, right? For immigrant communities and migrant communities in the case of Puerto Ricans, right? Who are U.S. colonial subjects still to the present, right? Um, so they don't come here as immigrants, but as migrants. But either either um, we recognize that for those populations, because our children go to those places, the institution that they're most connected with outside of the home, and the first one inside of that larger society is usually education, right? And what a powerful thing, right? And then, and then, what is the, what is the the inequity, right, of of a system of education where they're learning uh, about society, right? That's teaching them about this place, that's preparing them to be citizens inside of this place, and then negates their existence, right? The existence of the of the communities that they're a part of, and and that they are, you know, descendants from like curriculum becomes a really important thing there, right? Um, a vital thing, one would say, to a democratic project, right? To be able to see yourself inside of the things that you study, like that's, a, that's, an, important, that's an important struggle, right? Um, but, you know, school is just one of the, of the multitude of things that are shaping uh, who we are and how we identify over time, right? Um, the work I do, I, like I'm mostly a 20th century U.S. historian, and the the period that I'm most fascinated with, and that I really spend my time with, is, is that mid 20th century period. And like the work I'm doing right now on on essentially the baby boomer generation inside of uh, you know Latinx America um, is uh, looking at a whole bunch of different ways that they are having their identity shaped. Um, and one of those is the immigrant household, and one of those is the school, and certainly one of those is the rhetoric of Cold War United States, you know, political culture. But another one is television, right? This is the the first generation raised on television. What a powerful intervention into a Spanish-speaking home, right? To have a box that is giving you pictures and sound in English, right? Mm -hmm. That is giving you programs that you want to identify with, heroes that you want to identify with, right? Not ones that are that are your own, right? That are of your, you know, linguistic and cultural background. Very often, not at all, right? Um, except when you're the bad guy sometimes in a Western or that kind of thing. But just things like, you know, the the Mickey Mouse Club or Superman or, you know, things that, that like any child in any time period, you know, we gravitate to these things on television and want to be them, seek to see ourselves in them and often, you know, use that to formulate who we want to be and how we are, like, Television wasn't designed to create a, you know, a kind of cohesive national uh, 
assimilative culture, um, but it did, right? It, it certainly created different pathways for those immigrant communities and for their children to identify in new ways that previous generations didn't, right? So even the things we don't think of, but then you think about, the, you know, eventually we start to realize, hey, there should be more African-American uh, characters on television. There should be more uh, Latinx characters on television. They shouldn't just be the criminals in a cop show, right? That they should be positive, you know, portrayals. And, and you know, politics evolves in that direction. We recognize the importance of that, you know? So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it comes from a lot of different places, right? All at the same time, um, each with their own message, often even something like television with an inconsistent message. Depends on the program, right? It can be telling you lots of different things at once. Yeah, I think everything sends a different message, I guess. Um, I'm not an expert in this field, but looking at these different things while education is now being emphasized um, for Latina communities, we still have things like gerrymandering in the political sphere that's limiting the political power of Latina communities and there seem to be a lot of contradictions in different policies, yet they're all reinforcing each other at the same time it's uh, yeah this is a really big topic and it starts probably with education in my opinion and starting with the next generation where there'll be that understanding where there won't where when they get into positions of power these things will begin to stop so yeah i think there's a reason that i mean i'm sure you're aware in this nation right now you know, education is front page news, right? The fights uh, over what kind of things can be taught to to one's uh, collectively, one's children. Uh, you know, the generation of young right now, and it's not, that's not a surprise. You know, it it might it might seem new in some ways to a lot of people, but these are these are very old fights, <laughs> very very old fights, especially for the the segment of, of political leaders that have been advocating for these kinds of things. Um, and they're really contests over, you know, there's a segment of this country who is so wedded to the this mythical, you know, <laughs> history of what they want the United States, wish the United States was, that they can't grapple with, with you know, fundamental, uh, those things we talked about at the beginning, tensions, contradictions, right? Other things that were happening. And that's that's history, right? And but of course, I don't think I, you know it's it's a mix of people who actually believe in that and happen to be in power. But I think largely it's groups of people who know that that's the way to get power and stay in power. I think they know better, but many of them recognize that this is a way to bring people of support to you because you know when you when you ring those bells when you blow those those proverbial whistles you know people come running and they support you and when you're also the same political faction in this country that's been dismantling public education <laughs> you know one can be conspiratorial it leads one to be often conspiratorial about this right that the same people who are running on these kinds of, of platforms are the same people who have been trying to dismantle all the strength in our public education system over my lifetime too so and we talk about education we talk about history being a core part of that curriculum but history has many versions of it like um you yourself study a group that probably won't make it into or haven't made it into a mainstream textbook just yet um history is definitely shaped i believe by winners by strong institutions it's very eurocentric in this sense however if we bring everybody's story into it if we bring everybody's perspective into it it'd be sort of a mess to learn so where do you as an academic um think that compromise lies at least in education before graduate school postgraduate where you can dive into a specific niche yeah it's it's a it's a good question. I would say there. Uh, what I'm hearing in your question though is these two things are a little bit two different realms, mm -hmm. right? Because one is not so much about history in the broad sense of what the past was and what it meant, um, but it's really about how we package it for for kids and what are the vital things to know. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, education in this modern era, in this at least 20th century beyond era has always been at some level, you know, thinking about, you know, what do we have to teach people, right? 
what does society need to know? And those are very different kinds of questions, I think, than the academic historian. Um, although we're very related to all those, and we certainly have opinions on all those, I would imagine. But you know, basically, history is trying to better understand the past, and that is something that is just a never-ending process, right? We can always look at it from different angles. And as we do that, we gain a, a deeper appreciation of the complexities and the contradictions and also everything else that's a part of the past. And so I think that, yes, it it, it might seem like cacophony, right? After a while that it's just, you know, it's like a, it's like a giant stadium of everybody speaking at once. But um, I think... I think it's not quite. Um, I think inherently there's always uh, uh, something moving towards a collective voice in any national project. But there, there are these different voices that are all worth worth knowing and hearing. And as we hear those, as we stop to hear those and to listen and to process, right, to try to figure out how people made meaning of their time and place we get a whole set of benefits for us in the present, right? To better understand how we, you know, can move forward in in ways that that bring us, uh, you know, as societies closer together, as a globe closer together, right? How we can how we can do every. I mean, and, you know, what are we facing right now, and and will be facing for your entire life and the life of you know, whatever generation or two come after you or, you know, global climate crises. These are, you know, these don't stop at national borders. These don't stop in a community of one language and, and, and you know, not affect a community of another. These are global issues. Like understanding the way, the ways that human beings negotiate their time and place, understanding the things that are historically contingent, right? specific to these dynamics and also understanding maybe some sort of sense of human beings you know writ large over time you know what are the things that make us who we are as a species you know no matter when we are no matter where we are like there's there's wonderful things that come from from that slowing down and and hearing and grappling with that complexity hearing all those different voices so it might be impossible but even even impossible things are are worth doing imperfectly. Uh, you know, it, sometimes things have to be done that even though you can't do them perfectly, you still have to move in that direction and get as close as you can. And I think with history, that's one of them. I really like that. I think I, I think that should be a quote. Um, even impossible things are worth doing imperfectly. And I think even history as in general or looking at these different things that can never be objective it's not about finding something it's not possible to find that equilibrium where every everyone's happy from every single community everyone experienced it differently but you got to come to an understanding with each other where we have the best possible thing to learn from and to shape how we want to think in the future because that starts with learning from our past and one of the stories i guess that you also never hear in typical curriculum like i've studied the vietnam war as part of my history curriculum a few times but the vietnam war and latinx america have a lot of a connection and i know you're um working on a book about that right now um could you give us maybe a little bit of a sneak peek into what that's talking about <laughs> sure yeah well for so i'm i'm you know by practice um i'm an oral historian right that's that's the main methodology that i use although i'm like any other historian you know i do archival work and everything else but uh, a big part of what I do is oral histories. And that, that's been since I was an undergraduate in, in college. That's when I started this. Um, well, in some ways I started it even before that because I come from a family where stories are really important. And I think inside of immigrant families in general, stories can play a really important role, right? In, in generations who first come, you know, wanting to pass on things. So, I mean, you know, hoping that things don't get lost, you know, in that, in that big movement. So stories have always been so important. And, 
Um, these are the for the last uh, it's, well, it's about whoa, 13 years in a very focused way that I've been doing this as my research. And um, it started, uh, I mean, I'd done oral histories with Vietnam veterans before, but um, I was very focused on this over the last decade and change. And so um, that's what I've been doing. And not just interviews with uh, mostly Chicanos, Mexican-Americans uh, who uh, served in the U.S. military in, in Southeast Asia, um, in, in the U.S. wars in, in Vietnam and Cambodia. Um, but uh, also uh, other Chicanos and Latinos who were in the military at the time, others who weren't, um, also their wives, um, you know, sisters, brothers. Um, I've been I've been a little late to the game for parents, but I have a couple of interviews with parents in that generation, and and so it's it's not just about uh, those who served in the military, but it's really just trying to get a sense of a better uh, sense of mid 20th century uh, um, um, Mexican-American populations in the U.S. and how Vietnam, you know, the U.S. wars in Southeast Asia are really a vehicle to understand certain things. Um, and I'd say the focus of the work is on, on the baby boom generation, mm -hmm. um, which in this case I label the brown baby boom. So the the Latino baby boom that was occurring and, and I follow this generation and my argument is that um, their involvement in something in the Vietnam War is a really um, amazing window that helps us better understand certain kinds of dynamics, uh, not the least of which is is kind of this um, duality of marginalization in a lot of ways in society, but also identities of, of assimilation as well. And so again, that tension that I was talking about. I love I love tensions. Um, like that's actually the 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 working title of the book is on the edge of things, right? Which is, you know, when you're on the edge of things. Actually, I got this, I got this phrase. I'll tell you, I, I got this phrase from a, a documentary on the filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock. I don't know if you've ever heard of Alfred Hitchcock, but he's a famous uh, British uh, filmmaker, made famous horror movies in particular, or thrillers, I think is the more accurate thing. I think I've heard the name, not too familiar. Yeah. He's, 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 an, he's a very important filmmaker and a, a very impactful one. And there was another filmmaker in this documentary, and I forget which which one it is. So I, sh I shouldn't guess, but um, but he said, um, I'm, I'm actually I'm sure it was not an English language uh, filmmaker, but I don't remember if he was French or or Japanese, which would be or maybe German. I don't know. But anyways, the the phrase that he used was that Hitchcock was always on the edge of things, and it struck me in the way that uh, that was at least translated that that can mean both things, right? We can be on the edge and falling off. It's a sense of the margin, right? You've gone to the end, the edge, and you're moving in that direction, right? Which is a dangerous one, a precarious one, right? But then we also talk about the edge as the cutting edge, right? Which is the edge that is moving, that is becoming, you know, something new, right? And so the edge can lean out and, the, and you can lean in in that edge, right? And that's really the dynamic that I'm looking at in 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 this story so it's it, it is about the u.s war in vietnam and the participation of um in particular you know chicanos and latinos in that war um but really it's it's not just about the war it's about it's about them in the united states and how this experience is a window into that mm -hmm. i guess following that we talk about how there's a lot of books a lot of media already written about this, um, or at least maybe not as much Latina perspective, but about the Vietnam War. And I remember when we talked in the very beginning about the question of studying history, you mentioned your interest in music. And I've been fortunate in my English class to look a little bit about um, regarding works like Masters of War by Bob Dylan. Are there counterparts of this in or um, Spanish songs during this time that would tell a different story that you'd suggest we look into? What a good question. So, well, I, I, I'm very, I'm very driven by music. I, there are two parts uh, in the book so far, which is, I mean, I'm in the writing stages right now. So I hope in the, in, 
uh, it'll be a little more than a year from now, but I would hope in 2024 sometime to be done with a draft of it. But there are so far two parts where I actually write about uh, two different songs uh, in in different places for totally different reasons. But um, I'll, I'll say I've also done other things with with these oral histories and and other. Th- I, I'm I'm very much you know I think as an oral historian we're all a little bit public historians, um, but I've been just very much into into more public non academic kinds of presentations of my work because that's kind of what the field of of Chicanic studies has always been about, right? Blurring the lines of of the academy and. Um, so one of the things I've done, a, uh, an exhibit with these oral histories, but nothing I did is I wrote a play, um, and had funding to do that. And we produced a play and, and got to run in Los Angeles for a couple of weeks at this theater in LA. And one of the best, one of the most fun parts about that was the theater had, um, whatever is the very expensive rights, uh, to, to play songs without so they had the the licensing for the songs already right because you you have to pay money um, because it's also a venue that the groups play in so i could use any songs that i wanted inside of the play and we had the copyright permission for it and so the play i mixed in all these songs as uh, breaks would happen or changes would happen rather they weren't breaks but changes would happen and in, in moving on to the next scene of things and changing the time and it was all songs it was all songs and the last song of it was a song by a very famous, the most famous, uh, Conjunto group. It's a style of like Norteño music in Mexico, um, by, and their name Los Tigres del Norte, uh, the Tigers Tiger. of the North. Uh, Los Tigres are, are the most famous, uh, of these styles of music. Uh, and they're actually, they're actually founded in San Jose, California. Like that's where they began too. So there's something of a of a transnational, you know, border crossing kind of phenomena. And they wrote a song in the 70s, in 1974, uh, called the uh, Hijos de Hernandez. And it's it's about a, a young man who fought in Vietnam. So yes, there are. There are. But most of the songs I use are just songs of the era, you know, some that have you know specific war meanings, others that you know, were co-opted by <laughs> by by people who who lived through those events and and made war meaning from them. Right? There's the classic song of "By the Animals." We got to get out of this place. Um, you know, that wasn't about war at all. That was about like a working class couple just wanting to get away from their <laughs> working class lives. But you know, when people sang it in Vietnam, they were they made it into a Vietnam song or an anti-Vietnam song. But, So my last question would be, we talked about music, we talked about oral history, about theater even. What would be the most special thing regarding these different multimedia, or what is their biggest advantage over traditional um, written work for viewers who are interested in getting started in perhaps producing a multimedia project? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the thing... The way I think about it is public facing work. And that's a very intentional term, um, right? So it's not the, the form of it need not be multimedia, which is, you know, or digital or, you know, any, any one of those things, but the, because written work can be public facing too. Um, but I think, I think in using that term, what I mean is rather than producing work that turns inward to the academy, uh, where we're writing for other historians, where we're writing for the field, where we're writing for and in language that we use in academia, which is in many ways it's it's its own tongue, right? It's its own language, um, it's its own vernacular, and and it has its own set of values and expectations and forms and expectations of forms and all those sorts of things. Um, when we do something public facing. Um, that might happen in all these various kinds of modalities, but the important part is that we are thinking about that non-academic audience, right? And there's not a that's not a homogenous thing either, right? There are many audiences outside of academia. Every audience that can be is outside of academia, right? And and even academia is part of that audience too. And for me, the one that I'm very much concerned with, especially in this kind of project, is 
if I'm going to collect people's stories and use them as a historian to develop a better sense and understanding of the past through their stories, then I have a responsibility to be able to share that history back with those people who shared their story and the people who they are like, right? That I should be able to share the story back to the generations. Of and, oh, uh, have you frozen up again? A little bit, but I was, I, was, I was able to hear everything you just said. Yeah. And so that's, that's, that, 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 is, that is my value. Um, that is the value that I try to enact in doing that kind of public work. And I think if one is going to do that kind of public work, that's the thing that they have to think about, right? There's not, you know, we have a lot of people who might do this. I've met people who who do this in academia and they just say, oh, I'm doing a, you know, public work. I'm a, I'm a public this, a public that. Um, well, I ask, who's your audience? Oh, the public, you know, like they haven't really rooted it in, in thought about that and done the work of figuring out like, well, what are the values and expectations of that public? And how does one use language or other means of communication that that allow them to engage it where they are, right? You got to meet your audience where they are, right? You can't, you can't force them to be who they are not, right? And so you need to you need to do that kind of work, I think. So if, if we're going to do that public kind of work, I think that's the first step, figuring out, you know, what what do you know about your audience and who is that audience? Hmm. Well, thank you so much for that. I really hope that when starting off this podcast, it was meant for high schoolers and students such as myself and I truly hope that this is a format or oral history that can reach them without having to read difficult academia books. And just speaking to you today, there was so much that was learned. I typically do a conclusion at the end, but I find myself that, again, contradictions. I've learned so much, yet I have so many more questions. But the three biggest things I'd say to take away is that one, communities. When they band together, when coalitions happen, that's when something special occurs. Two, that the reinforcement cycle, that change starts with education. And I was trying to get to this third point because it was my favorite, that even impossible things are worth doing imperfectly. Because I think social justice or everything that this podcast hopes to achieve, they're, they're problems that are miles away. They're problems that are in the highest of institutions that aren't going to be solved in days, months, maybe even years. But it's about taking those first steps because if we think they're impossible and we're not even willing to try to do them imperfectly, we're always going to be seeking a solution that's just not there. So well said. Thank you so much again for your time, Professor um, Summer Sandoval. Thank you. It was truly, truly a pleasure. For me too. Thank you, Nathan. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History for Two. Please share this podcast with your friends and tune in for other episodes. You can also find full video episodes on the website www.history42.com.